All right, welcome back to another episode of Firewall. As usual, I'm your host, Bradley Tusk, and as usual is our friend and producer, Hugo Lingren. How's it going, man? Good. So we should alert listeners. We usually record these on Monday, and then we release them Tuesday. This mm-hmm. is going to be released Tuesday, but it's Friday because we're both on spring break. Yeah. Because we have kids, so we can still call it spring Where, break. Are you going anywhere? We're going to London, as you were supposed to oh, go. Oh, right, right, yeah. yeah. What are, now, you're going skiing. Yeah, Abby and I are going to Park City tomorrow. Really? Yeah. Just just you and Abby? Me and Abby for that, and then we're coming back, and then Lyle's joining us, and we're going to Jackson Hole. They're skiing in Jackson Hole, too, isn't there? That they're going to ski, yeah. Oh. So Lyle, it's, so here's the story. Wait, you're not flying out. to Utah, we flying are, home, and are, then flying back out to Wyoming? We are, because I made the Utah plans a while ago, Okay. and then Lyle decided he hates skiing, <laughs> but... Um, my friend Chris, who loves Chris, uh-huh. was at our house upstate this summer, and he talked. And Chris lives now in Montauk and Jackson. Okay. Um, and he talked Lyle into letting Chris teach him how to ski. Oh yeah. So we're um, we're going back, and in fact, it was just with me, me, and Lyle. And then Abby was like, "I want to go," and it's like, "Okay, there you go." So yeah, that's, that's our plan. That, okay. That's that's complicated, but but sounds like you reached a, a, a resolution. Yeah, a lot there. of travel, but I think I think we're going. It's going to be fun. So what we so do nice London. out there. Well, we were just making plans today. We're seeing a bunch of friends having dinners and that kind of thing, and then we were trying to figure out like what, how not to make it just the endless sort of historic sites and museums. Even though London is the best place in the world for that. We'll so. have people on the trip. No, the girls have never the been. The first time, right. So yeah. that's like when, when we, we didn't get to go, we planned out the trip. And a lot of times it was like stuff the adults didn't really want to do, but it's like how can you not take the kids to the Tower of London or whatever. See, right? I want to go to the Tower of London. I think that's cool. You like that one? I just remember when I was a kid, I remember it, it, it haunted me, you know, like yeah. it showed you where people got. I know. think some of the museums there are just, I love. So I, even if, so Tate I think, Modern. Tate, you Tate love Modern I love, yeah. and I love the Victoria Albert. Right. Um, and obviously the British Museum's incredibly impressive. Um, I love so, that on yeah. top of everything, you are also like a museum guy. I mean, I know you kind of well, have to be. I am married uh, to an art historian. I know. But, but you, you could see someone married to an or, art historian or, being super anti-museum. Or, 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 or put it this way. I think one of the reasons that uh, when we were really young and met that she was uh, someone interested in me was that I was able to tell her about my favorite paintings in different museums. Wow, without any like sort of studying up on for the, the exam, uh, right on, on over on the cuff or whatever that the phrase is. Uh, first time we met, yeah. See, remember? Do you, do you ever remember that movie, The Diner, about the f- yeah. group of friends in Baltimore? Yeah. And remember that the wife had to take a test yeah, about yeah, the Baltimore yeah. cu- cults in order to, to That's get one married. of the best. Scenes so the they should do the flip now. They should do it like where like. Like the guy ha- is is marrying an art historian and has to take an art test. Wouldn't that be funny? No, I don't know. No, I, I think know, it might. No, maybe, maybe not. not. Never mind. Uh oh, yeah. bad so. pitch. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, uh, yes. we have a couple of topics to discuss. Today. We have many topics. We're, we're going to get a little serious as sometimes we do, and we're going to talk about um, we're going to talk about the Biden crypto uh, executive order. We're going to talk about uh, we're going to talk Putin and the Ukraine and and some of the concerns about the the Russian economy and the impacts on the world. We're going to talk a little bit about Barry Diller and potentially in some trouble um, for, I guess, insider trading. Yeah. Um, but it's it's early. It's early yet. Um, but we're going to start. Yes. Um, with the Mets are back. The baseball is back. Well, we can't talk about too much about baseball being back because now it's been back for like four or five days, and people are like, "Okay, it's back." It's back. Oh, right, right. But but tell right. me, tell yes. me what is now? Okay, I have a question for you, just yeah. generally. I was talking to, um, as, as close listeners of the podcast know, uh, Bradley's dad, Gabe, works in the office, um, and uh, is it just a just a massive baseball fan. So Gabe and I were talking earlier, and he was just incredibly excited about all the various questions surrounding the Mets. But I have a question for you about 
you know how like being a baseball fan or being a sports fan now includes like being interested in contracts and being interested in the kind of like you know financial management is like yeah, part well, because of because the- in the NFL and the NBA you, you have salary caps so there's a whole science and art, I guess, to dealing with that. So does that interest you? Do you feel you like know, that's part of like the fun? Cause it, it, I don't actually really. I mean, here's the thing. Baseball does not have a salary cap. But there's still like because of the way the luxury tax works, there's yeah, like that kind of like although, soft cap. Fortunately, at the moment, uh, the Mets have one owner who does not care in the slightest. Right. They'll just spend Cohen, whatever. So, right. Right. So, um, you know, I, 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 I'm not into the NBA and the NFL enough to go that deep. In fact, what I realized about myself this year is for both sports, I'm basically a playoff fan. Right. Right. Maybe I'll watch three or four NBA games during the year. And I'll, and I'll go to NBA. I like just going. to hang out with your friends or whatever. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It just, you know, for whatever reason, uh, Christmas Day, whatever. But um, And then NFL, I don't know that I saw a minute of football until the playoffs. I watched a lot of the playoffs. And that's all you needed, though. The playoffs were so fantastic. Were awesome. It was yeah. like, oh, my God. They were who, great. Who, who wants to even bother with the regular season? Um, okay, so... Um, what are your what is what excites you about the baseball season? Given that the outlook for the Mets is pretty dismal. Well, yeah. So your your saying dismal, I think it's based on my interpretation. It, it is right. right, and I have to say that most of the experts don't agree with that. really. So I, they keep getting projected as like an eighty six to eighty eight win team, right? But they just expanded the playoffs to twelve teams. So as a result, do you like that? Do you like the twelve team? Yeah, yeah, it makes more fun. Because Gabe man. is not into the twelve team. Yeah, I know he's seventy. Not into the DH either. Yeah, really, that's just stupid. Like the the. I know watching a hitter hit. Although Degrom, he's probably going to be better than like the guys they yeah, set up. Yeah, but he's to. the kind of guy that will also completely hurt himself <laughs> overexerting at the plate, just like he does on the mound, and like probably will hit a home run, but will then be out for six weeks. Right, right. I mean that happens to him on both sides. Look, I. Um, one, I am happy that both the union and the league were smart enough to realize how stupid and bad this was looking and to kind of come to resolution on the stuff. Two, I, I like the actual changes, right? I think the DH is, is great. Um, really enjoyed it when we had it in 2020. And um, uh, the, what was it? And the 12-man playoff, 12-team playoff, right. So, like, um, yeah, I think that these are good rule changes that will make the game more fun. And then finally, you know, the Mets are – you know, I'm excited to go to the games. Even if they suck, I still go to 20, 25 games. Uh, you know, well, the experience of going to City Field is just first rate. It's, it's like it's, it's such a nice environment. If the weather's nice, it's so like, I still ha- I'm very biased because I go to City Field a lot. But I go to ballparks around the country. You know, uh, during the season and sit in sort of the equivalent seats always that I have at City Field. Right. Um, so really shitty, like yeah, bleacher type yeah, seats. Yeah. Last round. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And then you know what? I still like City Field the best. Yeah, I haven't been to as many places, but I, I, I went to one game in Pittsburgh in that stadium. I, that looks amazing. Yeah. I've been there. Yeah, that one's pretty nice. That would be my first one on my list to check Unfortunately, out. Unfortunately, the Pirates play there. Um, let's talk first about um, uh, Biden's crypto executive yeah, order. You've, sure. you've written a column on it, um, yep. and you think it's – uh, a mixed bag, but mixed bag in, in kind of a good way. Uh, no? You know, well, here's the thing. So mixed bag. So number one, uh, just background people don't know, uh, Biden and his administration for a while have sort of talked about the idea that they were going to do something about crypto. Right. Um, and then it finally took the form of an executive order, which came out on Wednesday, two days ago. And, you know, the crypto industry, I think, welcomed it, sort of read it pretty positively. Bitcoin went up 8.4% that day. 
Um, and, and actually sort of where I landed after spending some more time thinking about it is, this is somewhere between neutral and negative, actually. Oh, really? Yeah, it's kind of after more thought. That's what, So he, the, the, the good stuff is more just sort of like obvious Atmospheric stuff. kind of? Or just like, you know, we want to, you know, help the unbanked and do more for people excluded from the system. And it's like, yeah, it's exactly what people in crypto think too, right? They rejected the system completely, right? right. So no one like, or um, we should make America more competitive to win crypto jobs. Yes, you know, yeah, so, but, okay, or, or but, we should make sure that dictators don't ha use it. Right. It's a lot of shit that, like, who would disagree with that, right? Or we should not allow scams, right? But right, despite, no scams, right? But despite these like four or five things, like the yeah, president is coming out against crime, right? Like the first three or four, we're like, well, who would be against this, right? <laughs> um, fundamentally, the problem crypto had on Tuesday was that. The SEC, the CFTC, the FDIC, Treasury, anyone else related to DOJ, you know, has the ability to really fuck with them, right? Just because, make a rule, just do whatever yeah, they want, they, right? They can do make rules, they can launch investigations, they can take up hearings, whatever it is. And so they had that power on Tuesday, and guess what happened after the executive order on Wednesday? They still had that power. Right. right? And the way I read the executive order, or at least after like the third time I read it is that I think there were a couple of lines in there that actually were saying, foreshadowing, we're gonna go hard on regulation. So it wasn't just that it reaffirmed the authority. Right. I think it was sort of a bit of a tell of, of where they're planning to go. Wow. So with that said, so overall- I think, I, think you, I think you might have to rewrite that column because like- You think it comes off better than that? Well, you know, I, huh. I, I feel like you just said something very provocative um, that, uh, that is interesting. I, I said that in the column. Maybe it did. Maybe uh, you know we you were. Know, it's also too long, right? So I have to cut some of it. I was also like reading about fifty things in anticipation of the uh, of the podcast. So maybe I maybe I skipped the the relevant piece yeah, of it. I have, have to go back and read it. Oh well. Um, so um, wait, I had a, a question about that. Is uh, so is the executive order though the proper vehicle for like say giving clarity of like which agency should regulate or, could, so, so, or calling off certain agencies yes, saying it could be. He certainly could have done okay. that. So I think people in crypto would like the CFTC to be our regulator. Right. Uh, people who don't like crypto would like the SEC. Gary Gensler, who's the chair of the SEC, is pretty known as anti-crypto. Okay. Um, and look, I mean, so to me, okay, the executive order is somewhere between neutral and, and negative, right? Or mild, neutral and mildly negative, I guess. Um, so what do you do now, right? And it seems to me that the crypto community needs to get their shit together politically. They right. need to become pharma. Because if you think about it, they don't face That scares any. your average American consumer well, so, hearing that they need to be like pharma, though. Because pharma's yeah. lobbying scares the shit out of people, no? You don't need to do that much of it. Right. But here's the thing. Pharma has no grassroots supporters. Crypto has a lot. Right. So it would really be more like what we did for Uber and Bird and FanDuel. It's sort of how do you leverage all those people right. into voters, into sort of advocates. It's all that kind of stuff. Right. Plus a lot of money, right? right? Those are the two weapons you would you would yield, wield there. Um, it seems to me that until – look, let's, this is like the fucking basic precept of this podcast, right? Which is every policy output, repeat after me now, is the result of a political input, right? And so if a politician thinks – that you can do something to affect their next election, whether it's to help them win re-election or you could cause them to help lose re-election, they're going to deal with you and generally do what you want. Um, if they don't think you can help or hurt them in a meaningful way, you don't matter and you don't exist at all. 
So while crypto is a very big industry right now, it has no presence whatsoever. Punches way under its weight. Well, it doesn't punch at all, right? right so right. like, so as a result, no one cares. And if so, is this a signal to that in some weird? Is who? Here's a, here's a here's a kind of an idiot's question about Washington, but. Who writes this? Like, who produces the the policies that go into this 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 executive order? Because so you mentioned Gary Gensler. Does yeah. do, do they give him this? Does he? Does I'm sure he, sign he off on this? Yeah, I'm sure. So, so my guess is it went through a bunch of different agencies within Treasury. Right. And I bet Janet Yellen then signed off on it. Right. And then you got the Domestic Policy Council and the White House Economic Advisors. I'm sure they all felt the need to weigh in. And that's one of the reasons why it becomes mush, too, because everybody's taking— And anodyne, right? right. Because everyone's negotiating towards the middle. Right. So just like, yeah, so it's sort of— Like, at the end of the day, the report author—the executive order, you know what it does? It asks for 10 reports to be written in the next 18 months. Oh, God. That's it. Yeah. Yeah. And you know where those reports are going to go? Yeah. On the shelf that no one's ever going to open them. Yeah. So, like, welcome to Washington. But with that said, it doesn't mean that while that's happening, the SEC won't crack down on crypto at the same time. And the only way to prevent that is to have politicians feel like they need to take care of you and they need to fear you. And so, while Gensler's not an elected official, Joe Biden is, Kamala Harris is. And if you started making them persona non grata in the crypto community and you started really going after them with real money and ads and everything else, Pretty good chance they call Ginsler and say, fucking knock it off, man. Um, <laughs> and that's typically how this shit works. And so, but you've got to run, in this case, an aggressive negative campaign aimed at the President of the United States. So you got to have the stones to, to do something like that. Um, and then on the congressional side, they've got to figure out um, whether they want to play offense or defense, right? So the easier play is to say, I need like 25 to 50 members who really like us and will kill any bill that we don't like. Okay, right? so that's defense. That's defense. And that's pretty achievable, right? right. Like I think that wouldn't be – it takes some work, but not, not super hard. Like the, and are those all Republicans? Do, no, like, no, no. No, so that's know, some California, New York. Sure, to mix them. By the way, Florida. I think there are people on the super far left that like crypto also. Um, so really? Yeah, because it's sort of the still – Look, in the way that Bernie voters and Trump voters in some ways were very similar, mm-hmm. I think left people on the left have equal distrust for the banking system and institutions in general as people on the right. I, I, that's for sure. I just, you know, I, but that's I, what crypto is. I, no, it, well, it is and it isn't. I mean, it is it is in theory, but I think a lot of people also look at crypto as um, this this world of like, you know, speculators bidding up like yeah, abstract like financial instruments. And they feel left out by it, and they feel as excluded by maybe even more so than than by the the, the crap pulled on them by the banks. I mean the the, Wait, you know, the why are they excluded? Anyone well, can buy Bitcoin. Well, any, and anyone can, but right. N- but but when you see these like runaway speculative things, and you're like, oh shit, like which one? How do I do oh, it? So like, the, well, it feels very the, intimidating. That's what the executive order actually, I think, was talking about. Right, things that are wildly out of control. Right. right. Doesn't um, don't a lot of parts of the crypto world seem wildly out of control? <laughs> you know, only relative to each other, I guess. Um, some do, right? And you look. If you said to me, what are the actual regulations you would impose on crypto? So mm-hmm. the first thing would be consumer protection, right? Right. How do we protect the average consumer from fraudulent ICOs, fraudulent tokens, whatever it is, right? right? Um, and that's something, by the way, that every mainstream player in the industry should be happy to be, help be a part of right. because it's what separates you from the bad guys, mm-hmm. right? So that's that's number one. Number two is um, 
crypto mining is incredibly energy inefficient. Um, it's some, some power plants like a third to half of their uh, electricity, you know, watts, whatever it's called, you know, goes to crypto miners. Um, but there is a company that I know about that um, we're not investors in it, but, but I came across them that are doing um, zero carbon uh, crypto mining facilities. Mm-hmm. And I don't know why you couldn't make that the policy everywhere. Right. Um, so, look, and the other half, so those are the two things that I would probably, and then third would be seriously figuring out how to make crypto a growth job industry in the U.S. and really corner that market. Um, so th- that's what I would do. Look, the other option, obviously, is that they could play offense and try to pass legislation to regulate crypto, y- you know. It just—it's the odds of when when the phrase "an act of Congress" is literally synonymous with a miracle, right? Like that's a shitty strategy, right? <laughs> you, you can't base it on a miracle. So the timing here is—it's it's obviously not intentional, but um, the situation with with the sanctions against Russia, the uh, public position, a lot of the sort of crypto leaders about. Um, you know, not going along with with ideas of of, of cutting off access to crypto to to, to Russian investors. Um, is there a is that a potentially a big political problem for crypto? You think in this country? You know, um, it's interesting because while I'm definitely a crypto supporter, I did have started having reservations in the last couple of weeks because. If Putin had diversified the Russian economy far more into crypto, a lot of these sanctions wouldn't be able to touch them, right? Um, and so if I'm a dictator watching this thing, I'm thinking like, and you know you can do something that's going to get you in a lot of trouble with everybody. I'm thinking like i got to move as much as possible, not just of, yes, my own assets because I don't want them seized and, and devalued, but also I can't afford to get overthrown, right? right. And so I've got to maintain – some minimum level of peace requires an insanely high degree of competence to do something like that though right i mean your average i mean can you imagine you know just how messed up the country of russia is um i mean i i i had this we're going to move it maybe we should move into the kind of quasi-nationalized because they're owned by oligarchs right so you you could could direct them to do stuff right sort of command style yeah yeah um should we should we since we're sort of on it we guess we should seg into this um this this idea about the the potential collapse of the Russian economy and what that could mean uh, for the rest of the world. Um, uh, I, I guess I guess the you know on the one hand people are saying well the Russian economy is not that big you know compared to the largest yeah. economies in the world U.S. China Western Europe. Um, but also you know it's pretty integrated um, yeah, into and it has some natural resources that the whole world uses. Well, that's the most incredible thing, right? The gas is still flowing between. You know Germany and, and Russia, and so given how much isn't ga- that kind of the whole yeah, thing? I don't get that part. <laughs> so given how much oil and gas Russia has, why aren't they more like the you know Middle Eastern countries um, who are quite wealthy? Why well, shouldn't shouldn't they be able to do more with this? Well, I think you have two big things. One, uh, incredible unequal distribution of, of resources, right? I mean, there's there's African countries that have oil, too, and they don't do such a great job of right. distributing it throughout the country, um, the wealth. But the, the, the other piece of it is that, um, uh, I mean, there's hundreds of millions of people in Russia. Um, yeah, and so, and, and they, they, I mean, I, I, this is one of the things I wonder about with the, with the sanctions and all these American companies and Western companies pulling out. 
I kind of wonder if this is not actually what Putin wants, that, that there's this, you know, what, what I don't understand about like life in Russia is what percentage of Russian, of the Russian population lives like Western lives, you know, that interact with Russian, with, with American and European companies that, that have iPhones or whatever, just live lives. So you're saying take the people who are, could be the most threatening to him as a group and undermine their lives completely. Well, that's what I wonder. Like, it, it, I mean, it's what's, yeah. it's what's you know happening. What? So this is, in some ways, the greatest genius of Putin, as awful and evil as he is, is that he's convinced us that he's capable of absolutely anything, right? You know, so it could be completely brilliant. It could be completely fucking nuts. It could be both. It could be a bad idea. And so no matter what theory you raise, yeah, if the other person plausible. just has to say, like, yeah, I guess that could happen. I know. Yeah, all our fears can be pinned on him right there. Um, well, tell me what what are your fears about the effects of 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 the sanctions on on global sort of economic stability? You talk well, you talk about this in the podcast yeah, that you're going to be doing with Jordan, with, with so. Jordan on on Thursday. But I'm I'm just curious if you're because Jordan actually has some really interesting opinions yeah, on that. that are, I mean, look, it, it doesn't happen in a vacuum. Right. So if it were happening right now without inflation of seven point nine percent, if it were happening right now without a massive supply chain problem. And if we're happening right now at a time where, like, the U.S. is coming out of COVID, but most of the world is still in it, man. Because, like, you know, there are countries like ours where everyone who wanted a vaccine could get one for free. And at this point, anyone doesn't have one did so by choice, right? But there are a lot of countries around the world where there are no vaccines yet. Um, And so the world is still dealing with COVID and all of its repercussions and costs and drags on the economy and whatever else. So those three things combined with, um, you know, the disruptions from the Russian economy. Yeah, I don't think that it's it's like of China or something that happened. But, like, there is oil or natural resources that come out of there. Um, you know, there are some U.S. companies that operate inside of Russia. Um, there are other, you know, products that I, I guess are, are exported to the U.S. So, yeah, there's, there's some impact. But I think it just gets magnified because of all the things I just said— the highest profile one right now is the war because it's a war. Um, and so, therefore, I think it's getting a disproportionate amount of the blame or credit for this thing. And I think it's one of a bunch of factors. There was um, uh, uh, a line that made me, made me, <laughs> made me chuckle in the, in the Washington Post story you sent me about the downgrade of, like, Russian debt um, and, uh, by the rating agencies. And the, um, the line in the story was, the downgrades are signaled to investors to steer clear of Russia. <laughs> And he's like, oh, those investors are going to wait for that, are they? They're going to wait. Oh, my God, we have the downgrade here. So I shouldn't invest. (laughs) Okay. Um, You know, it's funny. So I sent you that story as a juxtaposition. I'm saying the word wrong. Um, I know. I think you said it right. Juxtaposition, yeah. Okay. uh, uh, They were like the two lead stories in the Washington Post that day. Okay. And what it said to me was they presented a really interesting question and choice, right, which was, One of them, the one about the Russian economy, was basically, here's how bad it's going to be for everyone around the world um, because of this thing. And the other one was like Russia bombed a hospital, right, a maternity ward, right? right? And so it's like on one hand, you would would look at someone bombing maternity wards and say we should fucking do something, right, more (laughs) so than sanctions. We should use our military to do that. But at the same time— you are, number one, definitely disrupting the global economy so people are now paying more for gas and milk and everything else. And number two, risking a much bigger war um, where, you know, America could be attacked directly. And so as a result, you know, um, 
you don't really do that. And so, you know, you've got these two things where on one hand, it's sort of a moral horror. On the other hand, acting on it in, in a really decisive way puts even exponentially more people at risk. Right. And it's, I don't think there's a right answer. Um, and there aren't that many people that are like total hawks or doves on this either. There's like, you don't see that many people who are like, we got to send in our whole military right now. Um, and no one's like, oh, we should ignore it completely. So, you know, I, I don't think that um, there is that kind of diversity uh, of thought around this right now yet. But, you know, um, at some point, uh, you know, people have to make choices around this, right? And I think Biden has basically picked the, what he sees as the greater good. Right. And I mean, you know, Biden gets to, uh, you know, has an opportunity to to really play the presidency in a really powerful, dramatic way, which I think uh, uh, is something he's been wanting to do and, and now has an issue that that he has has the um, the the support to really to really be the leader he wants to be. I mean, yeah, that's not very well said, but there you go. I said it um, now. One of the collateral damages uh, or a piece of collateral damage in the sort of rush to get aid to Ukraine yeah. uh, from Washington is something that you've been working on and that you're, you're uh, the head of your philanthropies uh, division uh, or the head of anti-hunger division of your philanthropies, Lisa Quigley's been working on, which is to get um, the school lunch program extended yeah. um, throughout the country. Tell us what's going on with that. Um, yeah. it, it's, not, it's, not, it's not great news. No, it's terrible news. So um, during COVID, Congress and the federal government, generally speaking, were really good on the issue of school meals in terms of they just said, look, everyone can get food. We don't, we're not going to worry about income eligibility or requirements, distribution, just like you need it, you got it. Um, and that, to us, was pretty incredible. And so what we had been working on was how do we make this permanent, right? right? So the first piece was getting money in the you know now non-existent Build Back Better bill where we're right. getting $10 plus billion in new money for universal school meals, uh, and then if that happened, we would have to then go run campaigns in every state to mandate it there. We've done so in California, and we've got a legislation being like voted on, debated in Vermont as we speak. Um, so, you know, we, we do have a, a couple of places where we have it going, but right. it's going to be a lot easier if we could say to them, it's already paid for, right? We got you the money. All you got to do is like pass a few laws. Yeah, that's a small match, but, you know, at the end of the day, and we'd like to get to a world where you just Breakfast and lunch is available at every school for every kid, and you take it if you want it. You don't take it if you don't want it, and you will feed every hungry kid. And at worst case, some kids who could have afforded their own breakfast or lunch got one for free. Big fucking deal, right? So um, you know, and, and you yeah. remove any stigma about about for sure. You well, need that's or not. The, this whole breakfast right. in the uh, breakfast after the bell program that we've done a bunch of bills on. Uh -huh is to provide breakfast in the homeroom, partly just because everyone's in there, so you can get it to them, but also because it's just available to anyone who wants it. If you're hungry, so the, you get it, right. Yeah, so the stigmatization goes away, and there are kids who certainly wouldn't qualify for meals, but like, yeah, I want the snack every morning in my classroom, sure. Um, so, but the waivers that had been granted for COVID expired this coming June 30th, um, and what we in the hunger community wanted was an extension till September 30th so that all of these kids during the summer wouldn't have anywhere to go to get food. Um, but uh, Congress did not include that in the bill. They, they, Democrats blamed it on the Republicans, but nonetheless, they passed a bill that is going to cause 3.7 million kids to lose their access to food and to go hungry, right? So that, to me, is—I I get the politics where 
the bill had to pass to keep the country going, and Schumer and Pelosi just weren't, their view was no, amem- no real amendments because they will never pass this thing. And th- that's probably actually right. Right. But at the same time, you know, there's a chance to make this thing up, right? So they could, they could pass a bill that extends the waivers for significantly longer, um, that does provide the funding that we discussed for your school meals, and also in that same funding bill or rule changes to eligibility so more families could participate, right? right? Um, and so we still want to keep those rules too. So look, whether that's standalone legislation, which is so hard to pass, or it's an amendment to some sort of reconciliation spending bill, um, you know, that's what we're working towards. But, you know, we thought we'd be working towards it while kids were still doing okay, and now we're working towards it while kids are going to be suffering. Right. Um, we had one more topic that we were going to... Barry Diller. Do you want to do Barry Diller? Yeah, little sure cherry on top, Barry Diller? Yeah, sure. I, 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 but just to be clear, I have no real inherent view of Barry Diller, and I never have done business with him or really IAC in, in any meaningful way. So I don't have a lot of... All I know about him is what I've read. So let's explain the situation. Barry Diller, I mean, he, it's sort of early days in an investigation of whether he... Uh, uh, well, he did apparently buy a b- whole bunch of options in Activision a few days before they were acquired by Microsoft and made a sort of tidy little profit. Um, and typically, that's the kind of thing the uh, SEC looks out for, uh, people who buy stuff right before it goes up, um, especially people in a position as Barry Diller is to know things before they happen. Um, and so they're looking into that. Um, I guess, you know, the, the kind of like armchair view of it is like, why does a guy like Barry Diller take a risk like this? Um, and what's your what's your like take yeah, on it? Yeah, I mean, like obviously whether he acted on inside information or not. Yeah, I mean, by the way, it's certainly possible that, that it was that's just he bought Activision because he felt like it was a good time to buy it and was proven right. But obviously, he has really good business instincts in general. Right, that's what they're claiming. Or they had some inside knowledge that the deal was going to be announced four days later, Microsoft's uh, acquisition of Activision. Um, and the stock would go way up, which right. is exactly what happened. Right. Um, and so I think they made like $60 million on it or something like that. So Chump change. It is chump change for Barry Diller, right? Because he's worth, I don't know how many billions, but billions of, of dollars, right. right? And so I guess the questions would be, one... Although, um, interestingly, his, his uh, son-in-law, is it son-in-law? His, his stepson, Alex von Furstenberg, was uh, involved in the deal, so maybe he doesn't have money to burn. I don't know. I don't maybe know. he does. He's, he's, he's stepson of Barry Dell, you're probably not starving. But, <laughs> well, definitely you know, the, not starving. The, the, the first would be, um, how much do they just have to always win, right? And sometimes people are just driven by this incredibly competitive nature and in some way, they don't even necessarily care what it is they're winning. You know, it could be ping just, pong. Just win, win, win. Or litigation or buying companies or whatever it is. And so if you literally can't turn that piece of you off, um, then, you know, maybe that's one reason why you would do it. Um, another would be, you know, some, oftentimes the, the people who do you in are not your enemies but your friends, right? Just hypothesize here that Alexander Furstenberg came across this information, went to his stepfather with it because he needed capital to invest, and maybe Barry Diller was like, oh, I shouldn't do this, but, and I have no idea what Alex Furstenberg was like, so we're just totally making this up. Like, this kid's a total (laughs) fuck up. You know, (laughs) nothing ever goes right for him. Here's something I can help him with that would make a big difference in his life, make his mother really happy, and, you know, for the the right reasons, does the wrong thing, right? So that's another possibility. Um, 
another one is just pure greed, right? Like I just there's never enough, and you just want more and more and more no matter what. And I think a fourth is, and you know, it's interesting because Barry Diller is sort of very culturally engaged, but it's almost like sometimes when people do things or spend money on things, you're like. You literally have just nothing in your life. It's got to be so fucking hollow because it's just about money, material possessions, right? You don't have relationships that really matter to you. You don't have things that you believe in. There are things that you fight for or try to, you know, help. And you're just this totally hollow person. Um, and so, <laughs> you know, I think that that's, you know, there, there are, that that would be the the, the final one there. So, I, look, I don't know what the actual facts are here, and I don't want to say too much that Barry Dillard starts suing you and me for defamation or whatever it is. So he very well might have not done anything wrong. But um, it is interesting when people who have everything take stupid risks um, and risk everything for ultimately not that big of a gain. Right, right. right. Um, and so... You know, look, you see it all the time. Like, politicians go down for, they don't, like, they're not like these amazing, like, heist artists. They're, they're, they're going down for, like, 30 grand. It's not for, like, they stole 12 million. You know, Bernie Madoff is a great fucking criminal, right? Right. What, he stole 20 billion or something like that? Yeah, yeah. You know, I bet if you went through all of the bribery convictions of politicians or even indictments across the U.S. over the course of a year, and then did yeah. an average number meeting, right. Three grand, five grand, something like that, right? Really low, not twenty billion, right? But I guess partially the theory there is that like if it's that little, like no one's going to notice, right? So like it's it's yeah, there, there's some kind of risk. Except here's the problem: evaluation. the FBI wildly overvalues these cases because they get a lot of attention for it and a lot yeah. of credit for it, and they would say they are the only thing standing in the way of, of rampant corruption of the public, um, and so you know. Yeah, it's a small amount of money, but if someone drops a dime, you know, you have a whole division of incredibly talented lawyers who are looking to, you know, take you down. So I, I think that they're misassessing the risk. Right. All right, Bradley. So that's I hope that's you... our message to all small-time corrupt politicians out there. Be careful. <laughs> Be careful out there. Um, Bradley, uh, I hope you have a, a great double yeah, skiing same. vacation. Have fun I, we're going to have to we're going to have to discuss the finer points of of uh, of Jackson Hole versus Park City when you get back. Yeah, I'm sure that's a topic that our listeners are yeah, super every, psyched yeah. to listen to because I know they're all debating that question too. So that's who isn't. So all right, see you next week. Bye bye.